Hello, I'm Richard Hollingham. Welcome to another edition of the Planet Earth podcast. This time I'm in Exeter to investigate the connection between fish poo and the White Cliffs of Dover. We'll also be meeting a scientist who studies dead whales. When a whale normally dies, it may gas up and float around for a bit. And once those decompositional gases have left the body, the carcass will sink to the seabed. So here's an intriguing question. Could the White Cliffs of Dover have been formed from fish excrement? It's certainly a real possibility, based on new research carried out here at the University of Exeter, led by Rod Wilson. I'm in the tropical aquarium. It's really pleasantly warm, a bit of a damp tang in the air. Tanks of brightly coloured fish around me from the floor to the ceiling. And Rod is with me. Rod, what were you investigating? A little while back, we discovered that, uh, rather surprisingly, marine fish are major producers of a a mineral called calcium carbonate within the oceans. Previously, it was known that coral reefs, for example, produce lots of this white crystalline mineral, and lots of marine algae do it too. But no one had really addressed the issue that fish produce it, and they simply precipitate these crystals within their gut and then excrete them to the external environment. So what's going on inside a fish gut to, to make these? Well, fish are obliged to keep their water balance uh, in check to drink lots of seawater. So your average fish might be drinking the equivalent of 12 litres of fluid a day compared to an adult human. And as part of the processing of that fluid, they precipitate calcium ions, which is present and abundant in seawater, as calcium carbonate. And they do this by producing lots and lots of a basic uh, material called bicarbonate into the gut and any ingested calcium ions get precipitated as this mineral or crystals of calcium carbonate. And that in turn helps them absorb water through a very interesting mechanism and also prevents them absorbing the calcium which would otherwise be potentially toxic. And how tiny are these? Are these crystals you're talking about? Individual crystals are very tiny. They're one to two microns long in some cases, which is a thousandth of a millimetre. But what happens is they aggregate together and you'll get up to a million individual crystals in a small aggregate, which is then visible, maybe half a millimetre long. And then that, or lots of these, get wrapped up in a kind of mucus coating and excreted to the external environment via the gut. And you were tracing these and looking at their effect on that external environment. How on earth do you do that? The first place is to collect fish from the, from the real environment. And we did this particular study in the Bahamas, at a place called Cape Eleuthera Island, brought wild fish into the laboratory, waited for them to uh, excrete these products and collected them from the bottom of the tanks, and then we begin the analysis. So we first of all clean up all the organic mucus. Very simple, you use household bleach. And what you're left with is the crystals of calcium carbonate. And then you can uh, measure them quantitatively or bring them back to the the labs, in in our case in the UK, at a colleague in, in Manchester, and look at them under the scanning electron microscope. So you can study the shape of the crystals and also the mineral type within that. And you're interested in what contribution they make to, well, geology, really, to to the landscape. Well, yes, that's certainly the the next step is to ask that question. But the, the reason we went to the Bahamas in the first place is because our predictions up to this point were that the crystals produced by fish are likely to dissolve quite quickly once they leave the body and enter the oceans. But then we realised that there are some parts of the world where there's a, a strong likelihood that they might actually be preserved in sediments. And those places to look were warm, i.e. tropical, and very shallow because the depth actually affects the uh, dissolving of this mineral too. So we picked the Bahamas as a very likely place where we've got lots of fish, 
lots of calcium carbonate sediment uh, and the right conditions for it to be preserved. Now, also here is Erin Reardon. You're looking at this not in the Bahamas. She shakes her head no. sadly, <laughs> uh, but in the UK. That's right. Yep, we're just getting started and we're doing a similar thing. We're targeting a range of species from a range of different lifestyles and habitats and collecting the material. And then we're also working with a range of different scientists to find evidence of these crystals in the sediment. So it's like looking for a needle in a haystack so far. Yeah. But again, you're interested in what contribution they make to, to the sediment. Well, that's right. Yeah, we, we basically want to know what happens when these carbonates leave the fish. Are they dissolving? Are they contributing to the sediment? And we just don't know uh, what's happening here in the UK. Which brings us back to the, the White Cliffs of Dover. Do you really think that they could have been formed by, by fish? They're certainly not only produced by fish. And in fact, people have studied the places like the White Cliffs of Dover, chalks and limestones for a long time. And within that, they're particularly looking for microfossils of things like coccoliths, which are very beautifully shaped uh, shells on, on single-celled organisms. What we're saying is there's quite a possibility that all the surrounding mush that they haven't really been able to identify previously, of which there's about 50% they don't know what it is, could potentially have come from fish because it's of a similar grain or crystal size to fish, and uh, we're yet to actually analyse that. The data from the Bahamas is very interesting because it's the first ever evidence of fish carbonates being found in nature and preserved within sedimentary material. And, of course, places like the White Cliffs of Dover and other chalk and, and limestone rocks ultimately formed by sediments settling out in very shallow areas of the ocean over geological time becoming compressed and then they become chalk and limestone. So a next step will be to ask, well, could fish from the ancient past have reproduced sufficient amounts of this material to actually make a major con contribution to uh, the limestone and chalks we see today? Some further evidence to point towards that is that if you look at ocean chemistry and atmospheric conditions from, say, 100 million years ago in the middle of the Cretaceous period, and we know there were plenty of fish around then, then every single factor that was different then, we know from evidence in the laboratory, would have caused fish to produce a lot more calcium carbonate and of a type that's much more likely to be preserved in the sediments. So it was warmer then. It had higher carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which we know enhances production by the fish. And most importantly, the calcium concentration in the dissolved seawater that the fish are drinking was at some points four times more concentrated then than present day. And you put all those things together and you have a recipe for a massive, massive elevation in the amount of calcium carbonate fish were producing 100 million years ago. And the next question is, would that turn up in today's rocks? And that's what you're trying to find out. Well, we'd love to get some more funding to, to look at that in the future, so yes. Well, Ros and Aaron, thank you both very much. And we'll come back and talk to you again, Aaron, when you've, when you've done your research. And you can read more about the research on the Planet Earth online website and see some pictures of the aquarium here in Exeter on our Facebook page. You can find both by searching for Planet Earth Online. Earlier this month, a 14-metre-long sperm whale died on the coast of Kent after becoming stranded on Pegwell Bay. Centuries ago, a beach-dead whale was worth a great deal and would automatically belong to the Crown. But that right has now passed onto London's Natural History Museum, and a whale carcass, for scientists like Nick Higgs, provides a valuable opportunity for study. Nick works, in partnership with the museum, at the University of Leeds, and as soon as he was told about the whale, headed to Kent to collect a sample for his research. Sue Nelson found out why. 
It's a tale of all creatures great and small. Well, I'm interested in how whales become fossils. Everything that happens from when they die to when we find them in the rocks. I assume that most whales die at sea. So what's the difference in having a carcass from a whale that's been beached like the one at Kent? When a whale normally dies, it may gas up and float around for a bit. And once those decompositional gases have left the body, the carcass will sink to the seabed. And this is a massive event for for the deep-sea animals that live down there, something we call a whale fall. And it attracts a huge number of scavengers from sharks to uh, hagfish and hundreds of amphipods, these shrimp-like animals that specialise on feeding on the flesh, as well as spider crabs that also come to have a pick at the meat. You're interested in a specific creature in particular, aren't you? Which one's this? Well, once all the meat's gone, you're left with the skeleton, but the feast isn't over then. I'm interested in these worms that come along to specifically feed on the whale bones. They're called ossidax worms, which means bone devourer in Latin. They range in size from about the size of your finger to maybe the size of one of your joints. They look more like little palm trees, really. They have what we call roots that grow into the bone and dissolve it away and eat the bone, and then they have this long trunk that sticks up out of the bone. And out of that trunk are four palps, which are like, kind of like palm tree branches, but they're bright red to pink, and those are the gills of the animal. Those are how it gets oxygen out of the water. When you went down to Kent, you got the call, you went to see the stranded sperm whale. What did you get out of it, or what did you want from it? Well, we were going down to get some bones that we could put on the seabed to try and find some of these Ossidax worms. And we came back successfully with a whole flipper, which has got several nice bones in it that the worms like. And where is this flipper at the moment? The flipper is stored at the Natural History Museum at the moment, awaiting deployment in the deep sea. Meanwhile, Nick can also study the effects of Ossidax worms in the paleontology clean room at the university. And the bone samples, which are preserved in alcohol, don't always need to be from whales. Several jars here. The sort that you'd expect to see a lot of chutney in. Sponge-like in appearance, although one of them, that does look like what you'd expect to see of a a bone. Yeah, that's actually the uh, leg bone of a cow. It seems that they'll live on several different types of bone. Yeah, they're quite happy living on any old, any old bits of bone. And these two jars, then, with the more sponge-like appearance, mm. I can read that, that's an elephant seal vertebra, and what's in this one? That's the top of it that we've cut off to get it into the jar. This was from an elephant seal carcass that was put down in the same area that they'd previously sank the whale carcasses to see if these worms would also like the bones of other animals as well. So we're starting to think that they might have a much bigger impact on the fossil record of not just whales, but any marine vertebrate. Right, well, let's take a couple of these jars back out of the clean room, away from the noise of the fume cupboard, and into the lab. What am I looking for? I'm not going to see any worms in this, am I? No, you may just see some of their tubes hanging out of the bone because they tend to dry up in the alcohol. They don't quite look as magnificent as they do in real life. But can you see here these kind of parchment-like bits sticking out of the bone? 
Those are the two tiny little yeah tiny tube, almost look like sort of rolled up spider's webs. Yeah, yeah, they've kind of decomposed because they've been in the jar for so long. You can see there's several small holes on the bone, and I don't know if you can just tell if I change the light slightly. There's a kind of mottled colour to the bone surface. I can see that. Yeah,、uh, that's the extent of where they bored away the bone underneath the surface. So all that black area. Is where the bone has been eaten away. Why is it so important to know the effect that your bone-eating worms have on a whale? Is it purely so that you know that you've got the correct age of a whale fossil, or is it more sort of basic than that? Do they have such a an effect on it that you can't necessarily tell what the creature is or, or when it was from? Exactly. Within ten years, they may be able to eat away whole bones. So, in which case, we'd have no record of that whale ever existing. Whereas, in some whales, like the one I'm investigating in Italy, a lot of the bones were found and couldn't really be properly described because they were so mangled and partially destroyed by these worms. And what I'm really interested in is is figuring out whether the gaps in the fossil record of whales may be caused by these worms. There's a significant period in the evolution of whales when they become ocean-going. Um, when they move away from shallow habitats, and we get this gap in the in the record, which is incredibly tantalising, because at the next stage after this gap, you start to see what we know as as the ancestors of, of modern whales,、uh, the tooth whales and the baleen whales. But there's there's this tantalising gap when they started moving out into open water, which is exactly when the carcasses would have started arriving in the deep sea. So, are these worms responsible? We don't know. And the only way to find this out then is to see a carcass in its entirety,、mm. in situ on a sea floor. How easy is that? It's very hard, and in fact, it, that's only happened a few times that we found natural whale falls on the seabed. What we do is we tend to sink carcasses that wash up, so that we know where they are and we can go back and study the process in its entirety. It sounds like you need a sort of series of fortunate coincidences from a, a scientific point of view that you get a whale and then you can immediately transfer it to somewhere that you can study. It is. It's a, it's immensely coincidental. All we can do is get everything ready and then sit and wait. When one already dies and washes up, then we try and make the most of that opportunity. And it's not always possible. In which case, we will just try and get some bone samples or whatever we can. And in fact, most of the whales that wash up go to landfill or are incinerated, which is such a shame because we can learn so much from them, even though they're already dead. And what we'd like to see is them sank at sea, and we so that we can find out more about this process. Nick Higgs from the University of Leeds, and in a couple of months he'll be travelling to California to visit whale carcasses sunk in the sea. You'll be able to hear how he gets on in a future edition of the Planet Earth podcast. As I speak, the situation in the aftermath of the earthquake and tsunami in Japan seems to be becoming worse by the day. And as the recovery effort continues, geologists have been investigating what caused this latest disaster. I'm joined by Tamara Jones from Planet Earth Online, who's been writing about this for the website. Now, Tamara, this earthquake was so powerful it was even felt in the UK. Is it clear what happened? Well, yes, I think scientists are pretty clear about what happened. I, I spoke to David Carriage at the British Geological Survey. He's the head of Earth Hazards, and he was explaining to me that what happened 
in this particular case is you've got the Pacific plate going underneath the plate that Japan is on and it's like a conveyor belt at Tesco so the, uh, the Pacific plate is like the conveyor belt and it disappears underneath the Japan plate and uh, what happens is it, it sticks as it, as it goes down and once it stops sticking that's when it springs up and they think it sprung up by about 10 metres which is a large amount of course that meant that that huge volume of water the ocean above it moved and that's what created the tsunami and that really is the cause of a lot of the damage this tsunami yeah exactly and i spoke to simon box or the um, national oceanography center and he was explaining to me that the tsunami is not like a normal wave which is only a few few meters maybe in length this wave it can range from 10 to tens of to hundreds of kilometers in length which so it's a massive volume of water and it was really close to the northeast coast of Japan. So when it hit the coast, it, all its energy hadn't dissipated. It just went straight into the land. The wave is traveling at about 500 miles an hour, which is about the speed of a jumbo jet, when it hits the shore. But, of course, it has to slow down because it hits all that land, even though it's quite low-lying uh, along the northeast coast of Japan. And the back of the wave catches up, and it builds up in height, and it got to about 10 meters in height, which is really, really big. And it went into up to about six miles inland and of course it hits trees it hits cars buildings and it carries all that up six miles into the land and then it has to recede and comes back so it's kind of like a double hit really which is why there's so much devastation you can see all the damage on the tv and what are the geologists doing now we usually if an earthquake's happened on land they can use a technique called insar and that means that they can use satellites uh, and it takes the satellite takes images of the land around where the earthquake happened and it, the, the insar um, manages to look at where the where the stresses are and where the future possible hazards are but in this particular situation because the earthquake happened under the ocean insar can't look through the water unfortunately so what they have to do is use models seismic models computer models and look at the seismic waves that this particular earthquake generated and say well if the fault happened this way if there were particular problems in this fault here would it create these sort of seismic waves or if there was a fault there would it create these seismic seismic waves and by doing that lots and lots of times they can actually look at where the future hazards probably will be. Well, thanks, Tamara. We've got several scientists around the world recording audio diaries about their research, and one of them is Sophie Hollis, who's in French Polynesia. Pacific Island's about 10,000 kilometres from the earthquake. She's just sent us this dispatch, and I think her experience gives us a sense of the scale of, of this earthquake and tsunami. It's 4.52 in the morning and we've just been woken up by the sound of a tsunami alarm. So everyone's grabbing their stuff and we're going to jump in the cars and drive up the mountain. We just had to get in the car to evacuate and stood by this uh, um, normally really quiet road and there are cars and cars and cars going past. Everyone's driving up the mountain to get away from the tsunami we don't know yet how high it's going to be but we're going to get in the car and get to a high point to be safe so we're up on the mountain with pretty much the population of Morea um waiting for the wave. Apparently it's 40 centimetres 
We're just waiting to hear on the radio when it's going to be safe to go back down. University of Bristol researcher Sophie Hollis in French Polynesia, who is safe and now getting back to her research. We'll hear more from Sophie about the work she's doing in the coming weeks. And that's the Planet Earth podcast. I'm Richard Hollingham. Thanks for listening.